We turn now to our sermon text in Exodus 32, or 33. Exodus chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart, and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the Tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the Tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the Tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the Tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the temple. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please. Show me your glory. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, if we did not know that Moses was the most humble of all men, it would not appear from the incredible boldness which he makes before the living God. Lord, we know that if he were not given this warrant and granted by your own sovereign hand and determination, And indeed, this is your good pleasure toward him and toward the nation, that thus he should act as mediator, and thus he should pray before you and plead for the people. 
and to ask for things which he had very little warrant for asking. Lord, we would not believe that you would grant it. But Lord, you did. And so we pray that we would go boldly now to look at these things squarely and to the God that they reveal to us and to the, the reserves of mercy and grace and goodness that are to be found in the one true and living God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So, tonight we come to Exodus 33. You know Exodus 33, uh, 32 is all about the golden calf. This people's crayed in bold sin. Incredible indeed that they should fall so far, so fast, having been recently rescued and redeemed out of the nation of Egypt. And we saw the amazing power that was granted to Moses in his, off, uh, his office as the, the appointed uh, interceder, the, the one who would come as in his intercessory role, the mediator. And so that even though God had said in verse 10 in the previous chapter, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation, that that is not what in the end happened, not at all. Moses interceded for the people on the basis of God's name and on the basis of God's covenant promises, and he wins. There is a victory. God agrees to it, and God relents from the harm that he would do. And so the amazing result of verse 14, the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And so God didn't wipe out the people entirely, just like he did with the old world and their sin, wiping it out entirely except for for, for Noah and making a new people out of Noah and his family. And God would not wipe out this nation as they so richly deserved. Yet there are still consequences for sin in this life, as we saw. And so we know that people like Achan were actually executed for far less than those people who made the golden calf, right? That, that was a, a much worse breaking of God's law. And justice demanded consequences. But even here, it was only about 3,000 men, and probably those who played a leading role in all this. And with the notable exception of Moses' brother Aaron, who played a very leading role in all this. And once again, the people were shown mercy they did not deserve. So it was not everyone who had anything to do with this incredibly great sin. But many, many, many of them were spared. And only 3,000 were executed. Right, so they're not wiped out. Only 3,000 of them pay temporal uh, uh, consequences for this great sin. And now as the time comes for them to leave the mountain, what next? Because remember, the covenant was on the basis that they would obey him. He said, I'm going to bring you into the promised land as long as you obey my, my, my covenant, as long as you keep my word. And don't go after idols. He said that many times. We know that in the course of of Exodus. But the problem is they've broken the covenant. They have gone after idols. Right? So so what now? He hasn't wiped them out. He spared so many of them from the temporal consequences of their sin. And here, amazingly, God says he will still uphold his end of the bargain unilaterally and still bring them into the promised land. That's amazing. God is so good. If you read this chapter and say, well, God is, God is a harsh God, you have, you have missed it. right? Because it's grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, one layer after another. And now, we're not, yet, we're not done, 
Because, of course, these people are the same people with all the same sinful tendencies. What Aaron said has a grain of truth. They are bent on evil. And God is still a holy God. And what is now to say that these things won't reoccur? Again, this is within a short amount of time that they've left Egypt. Already, Moses turns his back for a moment and they make a golden calf. And God was on the verge of wiping them out in his holiness. How is a holy God going to dwell with a sinful people? Great problem of the Old Testament. Great problem of Scripture. And the situation as it continues in this way is just not all that safe. right? There are some things that just don't work well together. And the situation is not safe. And so God proposes to send a mere angel to drive out the nations. Because even one of his angels can do that. It's no problem. And, and, but not the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate son of the living God with his own holy presence. And he explains, for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. And you could just take that as good news. Well, well God is looking out for our, our benefit here. We don't want to be wiped out. And maybe it's just as well that he sends a mere angel rather than comes, up with, a, comes with us um, Uh, personally but yet it was bad news and the people took it that way I I want us to see though in the clear light of day it's better than being wiped out right so the people didn't get wiped out they are still going to the promised land you know it's like uh, in in a family pointing out to the the kids that they no longer deserve to go to the special place they're going to go and, and maybe there's some little thing that you're now taking away from the situation, but they're still getting to go to the place that they were going. And if Moses was in a mood to settle, that would have been it. Good enough, Lord. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sparing our lives and for the nation and for still taking us to the promised land. The angel is more than enough. Thank you. But it wasn't. Moses wasn't in that mood. And the sermon is about what happened next. And I think this is highly relevant to our situation. Highly relevant. Right? Because how much we ask for in the days ahead is up to how much we ask for. Okay? It has to do with our estimation of God and the extent of his mercy and grace and just how much he is willing to give his people. And we have also have to decide whether we want to settle. Are we in a mood to settle for good enough? Or do we want a little bit more? So the title of the sermon is Wrestling for God's Presence. Wrestling for God's Presence. The four points are bad news, humbling, wrestling, and good news. I hope, children, that's pretty good for you guys. Uh, The first and last are bad news and good news, and in between it, humbling and wrestling. Make sense? All right. So wrestling for God's presence. First, the bad news that is given. Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. There's nothing bad about that. Again, this is a reiteration of the amazing, wonderful promise of God to bring them into the promised land. And they should have all breathed a sigh of relief, saying, good, we still get to go to the promised land. Wonderful. But notice in verse 2, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now, almost always I agree with the translation of the New King James. It's a strange thing, actually. It's alone in, in translating this as the big A angel. 
Actually, the authorized version has it as little a, and the ESV and all the other respected, ver any, any version that has any respect uh, would have it as a little a angel. And I think that they're right about that in this case. It's ambiguous in the Hebrew, but in the, uh, in the text that follows, it makes it pretty clear what this is. All right? Notice a difference. Uh, the way that promise was given back in Exodus 23.20. Behold, I send an angel. Yeah, it's the same basic word. Before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Okay, that's really important. So, angel alone is ambiguous, but when it's my name, what is the divine name? Right, it's those four letters. The Lord, my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries, and so on. So, that was the angel of his presence, the, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate son of God. And so that's confirmed then back in our text in verse 3 when he says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. He's being gracious and good even in that. He's reminding them of the goodness of the land that he's going. But I will not go up. And I would say, but, but I, would not, I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Again, we can see the mercy of God even in this potential settlement of this situation in that God is looking out for their welfare. And saying, is maybe it's better that I don't go personally with you and me and the second person of the Godhead walking along this way because you're a really sinful, stiff-necked people. And I want you to make it into the promised land. Well, that's the bad news. And the people rightly mourn about this. And we see, secondly, humbling. There's bad news and there's humbling. Verse 4, when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. Beloved, I want to tell you, this is good, good news for me. There's bad news, but when I read this about God's people, that's the best sign I've seen yet from this people. A reminder of the goodness of God to them. Somehow he has brought them to this point that they're mourning. If they knew it was good for them, theoretically, in some sense, maybe they wouldn't have asked for such a near presence of God if they were thinking carnally. But I think they've been humbled. I think that this rebuke, that came upon them, I think that the, the, the very minor um, in, in grand scheme of, of discipline that came upon them as the Lord plagued those 3,000 in their midst had its intended effect. And the whole people are in a different frame of mind. They recognize the, the, the great sin that they've committed against God, how they've offended God. They, they begin to remember just what a privilege it is to have the felt near presence of God with them. And they rightly mourn about this. That's really good news. And no one put on his ornaments. Verse 5, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come in your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments. And I'll stop right there. In verse 6, So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Well, that's an outward sign then of the inward humbling. Now how did these slaves get ornaments? Again, because they plundered the Egyptians on the way out. Uh, and the irony is, of course, that they took some of their ornaments and they used them to make the golden calf. They still had plenty left over, and they were wearing them. But it wasn't appropriate in this moment to do that. And rather, as a sign of their humbling before God, they all willingly took off those ornaments. And uh, they wanted, indeed, to show to God and to one another that they 
were, had been humbled by these things. And just as a reminder, of course, um, we don't deal these things utterly literally and sort of um, mechanically and like a Pharisee, but there are times that even in our outward appearance, we are we're humbling ourselves before the living God. There are seasons of fasting and prayer. And uh, unlike the Pharisees who make a great show of those outward things, of course, it's the inward. But when it's time, when we know that we've sinned or that our people have sinned, we come in our humility before God because we know that that's what's likely to bring the answer that we want. Well, I'll just mention that one thing also. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Hmm. What does that imply to you? Do you remember that thing that, that the Lord said in chapter 32 where he says, leave me alone that I might wipe out this people? It's an implicit invitation. It's, it's telling them this isn't the end of the story, right? For If you're, you're wondering, is it not a totally against the word of God to even try to, to wrestle with him at this point? Isn't it all foreordained? What is the point of prayer in, in such matters? The Lord himself gives you a little, uh, just a little bit of a foothold, just a little bit of a camel's nose to come and change the outcome in prayer. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that such things in the goodness of God happen? I hope you do, because the, the Bible is full of such things. And what he says is, that I may know what to do. What it means is that although I've already said this is the, the likely outcome, this is what you deserve, this is what's best for you in some sense, he says it's still open-ended. And the invitation now is for the people to demonstrate their humbling before him, because, of course, uh, a prideful people are not going to receive anything from the Lord. But in, our, in their humility now, they want to change that outcome. All right. Well, that's the humbling. Thirdly, is the wrestling. Now, therefore, as I say, that I may know what to do. Because the people, the, the status of the people is in some doubt. And Moses right now, no doubt, is preparing himself to fight for the people, to wrestle for God for their good, however unworthy and unthankful they might have been for his services. Because that's exactly what we find him doing next. Right? As he's making his walk back to meet with God, he is doing so having determined to wrestle for the people. Now, as I say, were he in, at all in the mood to settle, he might have said, look, I've already saved these people from extinction. You, you think that's sufficient. We're still going to the promised land. Maybe it's just as well that... The, the, the near presence of God isn't so close to us because this thing's going to happen again and it's going to be a lot of trouble for me as well as for the people. But no, no, he wants the best thing. He doesn't want to settle for this kind of compromise situation. He wants the best thing. He wants the promised land and he wants the presence of God. In fact, as we're going to see, he wants the presence of God even more than he wants the promised land. And he wants all the people too. He wants all of it. And he's not afraid to wrestle with God for it. Friends, this is, this is an example for us. We'll return to it in our application, but look, if God wanted to take the edge off of any of these things, he could easily have done that. But actually, as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, he only piles on even more unqualified things. You could say, back then, it's just Moses because he's the designated uh, 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 intermediary between God and men. He is the messianic figure. He's the one whose job it is to intercede for the people. 
But by the time we get to the New Testament, actually, such warrant for prayer is given to every one of God's people, even more than Moses had. And we're all the more encouraged to do those things. Right? But it was up to Moses. Before we go any further, it was up to Moses to come in a mood to wrestle with God in prayer for these things. Not just for the good, but for the best. And so he did. And then we find this statement in verse 11. That's one important thing. He came with a desire and a mood to wrestle for the the people's best. But there's a statement then in in verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And friends, that status, that situation is incredibly important. If anyone has ever had to negotiate with someone through layers of intermediaries, you know how difficult that is. It's true of people. It's even more true of God. And were it a matter of just of, of, of Moses being on the receiving end of thus saith the Lord, there isn't much negotiation to be going on. But no, the Lord spoke with Moses in the manner of a man speaking with his friend, meaning as a peer almost. He is able to speak freely and things are open-ended. And some among friends, right, it's a little different. If I come as, as the officer to men in the military and, and I tell them to do something, they simply do it. And there's no kind of, there's no kind of uh, conversation intended or implied by that. But now if I sit down with one of my friends and we talk about things, I might just say, well, I don't know. What do you, you know, I'm thinking of this. And the other person is very free to say, well, my thought would be this. And there's a negotiation that goes on. Now, friends, if you say how impossible is that for that to be the status of a mere worm, a creature of dust, to be doing with a God of glory, you've got it right. It's nuts that God would grant such a status to a worm, a sinful worm like Moses. But he did. He did. And so he speaks to him like a friend. And so those two things are in place. Moses' inclination to want to go wrestle but also the status that has been granted to him to be, as it were, a friend of God. Now let me say, so it was with Abraham. Just so you know that these things aren't taken from, from, you know, taken out of context or somehow I'm twisting the text, think about James 2.23 when it speaks of someone who's the friend of God. Scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Well, what does it look like to be the friend of God? get to wrestle okay that's what what you get in genesis 18:23, abraham this is when god has already said i'm going to go down to sodom and gomorrah and find out what's going on and they're going to get what's coming to them and abraham comes near and said would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked suppose there are 50 righteous within the city would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And if he were not the friend of God, he'd said, Who are you to even dare to speak to me like that? I do as I please. I'm the sovereign God of this universe. And these people are wicked. And you have gone too far in asking such thing. But the Lord said in verse 26, hmm, okay, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within this city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. 
I don't have time to go on for the rest of the iterations. But you know that Abraham came back and came back wrestling for those people. Remember, for the sake of his, his, his nephew Lot and his family to some extent and for the whole people. And kept going and kept going and kept going. And you know what? He is very conscious. Of, oh, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just dust speaking to the living God. But please, how about if it's just for, you know, and he goes on from 40, 30, 20, you know, so forth. And in the end, God doesn't say, now stop, okay? We've gone as low as I'm going to go. Now just stop asking. Who was the one who decided to stop asking? It's Abraham, not God. Theoretically, I don't find any reason why you couldn't have asked for something even more than that. He stopped asking, all right? God didn't tell him to. That's what happens when you're the friend of God. When you have that kind of status, you are invited to change the outcome. You're invited to negotiate with the living God for good things in prayer. We're going to see, not for your own selfish ends. In both of these cases, they're asking for others, right? For the people. But there's no end to what they were enabled to ask for. So look at Moses' negotiation then as he's wrestling with God in verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, whoa, whoa, whoa. Right? Think about the mode he's speaking to God. You say, meaning that there's some inconsistency, Lord. There's some inconsistency in your statements, Lord. You say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. He's speaking about this angel. Some random, anonymous angel. I don't even know his name. I don't even know who this guy is. And you're going to send this guy to me? Come on. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Is, is that the way you're going to treat me? If you say, I know you by name, and I don't even know the name of this angel, and, you have, and I have found grace, is this, I've really found grace in your sight? Is this, as, as, you know, this is the horrible reality that I live in because of all this? Now, this is overblown rhetoric. Right? This is, he's going a little bit too far. Okay? He's already been granted tremendous grace in the sight of God. He's already been, he and his people have been granted way more than they deserve. The mere fact that they're going anyway with any kind of escort into the promised land is more than he could have reasonably asked for. But he's taking it as far as he knows how. Yet you say, I know you by name and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore, this is the argument, therefore, premise Conclusion, I pray, he's being, he's being somewhat respectful, if I have found grace, if that's true, I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. Right? And so he has taken everything that he knows how, any little scrap that he's ever been given, Oh, yes, I remember the Lord has said, I found mercy and grace in his sight. Well, I'm going to use that. He's, once, he's called his people, although more recently he's called it my people. He's in times past called it his people. I'm going to use that. And I'm, I'm going to use whatever he, I have in my disposal to plead and to wrestle with God. And number four, there's good news. The bad news wasn't all that bad. It could have been a lot worse. But the good news is really good. 
Because in verse 14 he says, my presence will go with you. And I'll give you rest. It's this all. He doesn't say, Moses, you don't understand. Do you understand? Do you recognize the magnitude of the sin and the danger that they were in? Do you know what they almost happened to them? You are asking for too much, Moses. He doesn't even say that. Just like it was with Abraham. Just almost in, in meekness. Saying, okay, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Oh. Okay, now again, if I were Moses, I would say, oh, praise. Wonderful. But he doesn't stop. This guy does not stop. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known? He's, he's, no, he's, he's got him now, and he's just going for it. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? Well, his promise, I don't know, some other things probably could do that. So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of this earth. In verse 17, so the Lord said to Moses, okay, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Ha. Friends, the outcome couldn't have been any better than what it was. I don't know what else to say. I hope you have some, some grasp of the magnitude of the goodness and grace of God. And if God had any inclination to want to shut us down, to constrain our prayers, to foreclose on the magnitude of the things that we could ask, he had, he had strangely decided not to give us any such hint, whether here or any part of Scripture. If anything, we have, you know how I look for um, that one time, I'm looking for someone coming and asking for mercy from God and not receiving it. I'm also looking for that one time where somebody goes to God and prays for good things, you know, on behalf of others or kingdom sort of things, and is, is told, you're asking for too much. You need to stop asking. As I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Well, that's the good news. The bad news turns into the good news. The, the humbling and the wrestling get changed into the most marvelous news. And that the outcome that was there in front of their face, the bad news that had already been delivered, this time it wasn't from somebody external, you know, like Pharaoh saying, I'm going to wipe you out. It wasn't from some army that's coming to invade, saying, I'm going to destroy you. It was from God himself and righteous judgment upon their sin. And even this was mixed with amazing mercy at this point, too much mercy. And yet even that outcome gets changed for something better. Friends, what do we say about this? Number one, entrust yourself to Christ. Okay, right now I want to entrust myself to Moses. I would be glad to do that. If I were in this world and I, I said, well, let me at least have a, a leader like Moses who will go to bat for me in ways that I would not dare to do so because he seems to get what he wants before God. Yeah, he does. He's still around, by the way. Still around. Um, a reminder of he appeared on that Mount of Transfiguration, and we'll see him in glory. But there's one better that he pointed us to, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And friends, if Moses always got everything that he wanted, oh, say one thing for himself. Remember, he did want actually himself to see, to walk into the promised land. And all he got as a compromise from God is to, to walk up and see the promised land before he died. But on behalf of the people, he got everything that he ever wanted, everything that he ever interceded for them. And that's just a, a, a bare shadow of what the Lord Jesus Christ is able to accomplish on our behalf. If you have any sins, if you have any desire to do yourself good, your family good, you will entrust yourself to this mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who ever lives to make intercession for us, there at the, seated at the right hand of God, having his ear and with, his, with his, his, the holes in his wrists and the, the big hole in his side, there pleading before his blood, ever pleading that we might have mercy and grace beyond our desert. Entrust yourself to Christ. Secondly, avail yourself of prayer. Okay, just do that. Do that. Give it a try. Because you can you can ask for things as a Christian. You can even argue for things that are amazing. And more often than not, God gives them. All right. I, I it's hard for me to articulate how I feel about all this, but I am one who comes fresh from the experience of knowing this is true of feeling like maybe I'm asking for a little bit too much, but finding out I didn't even ask for enough. Okay? I am torn. On the one hand, I want to say, do you understand just how, how great the answers to prayer that we've already seen in this church? And on the one other hand, I want to make sure that, that I don't, uh, and some of you are going to be feeling like, well, but Bill, there are these things in my life that I have prayed for and I haven't seen answered yet, and it seems like those two things are conflict, and I recognize that conflict. I know the disappointments, and I don't want to be guilty of overstating things. But friends, the only thing I have here is the word of God. Right? I, I don't have my own word to give you. I don't have, I'm not going to try to, to, to interpret your experience and say this is how God has designed things. I'm going to say that the word of God says something different. James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So let's not ask for things to spend on our pleasures, but let's do ask for God's name to be revered in this place, his day to be hallowed, his house to be inhabited, the nations to be brought in, for Satan's kingdom to be destroyed. And let's not stop asking. We haven't asked for enough yet. We can ask for more. The door is wide open for more. We've not even exceeded what we can ask for our friends in America. They've told us that. Far, we are so far from exceeding what we can ask the living God for in these ways. I, I think we'll know when we've asked for too much. He'll tell us. But we haven't done that for, yet. We're not even close to it. You know, I remember praying as Kevin Bidwell encouraged me to pray for 100 members for this church. It was a, it was a step of faith to pray for that. Because there, we would be only the second of the 18 EPCW churches to reach that number. Well, friends, I had to turn in the numbers, and we have 96 members of today. And there are that many people who are now interested, four more, who are interested in membership. And that, Lord willing, in, in a few months we, we will be there. Um, and, and all glory goes to God for that. But now what? What are we supposed to pray for now? That, 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 that prayer has been answered. Well, friends, I don't know. 
I'm going to be giving some thought and prayer to what we pray for next myself. But again, I point out the simple fact that in the clearest possible way, God is calling us away from a place that holds a hundred to a place that holds a thousand. And we have to think about, therefore, what we're asking for as we do this. How reasonable do we want to be? Lest we be proven wrong, because that's the risk we take, isn't it? If we boldly ask for something, and those people there asking for crazy things, and we see that no church has ever been blessed like that in recent history. Okay, in times past, but not now. Or how daring do we want to be? Coming to God in a season where he seems to be giving whatever we ask for. Maybe we ask. And we let God decide how much is too much. Thirdly and finally, what we ask for most, what we desire most, is God's presence. Right? He was thankful for the promised land. Moses was thankful, but that thing that he really, really did not want to be without was the near presence of the living God. And we want many things. We want a building for Sunderland and funding for that work. We want funding for all saints and all these things. But what is most important is God's presence among us. And now I, I think we'd have to say that God assures us of that. God has given us a promise that his presence will be with us. He says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. And we believe that. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And we believe that. He says, I will not leave you orphans, but I'll send my spirit to be with you. And we believe that. Friends, that doesn't mean that we don't pray for it. Right? We absolutely pray that the tokens of God's favorable presence among us be more and more manifest in various ways. These are invisible spiritual things, so they can't really be seen. But there are ways in which they are manifested. And God's presence is known to us corporately. And God's presence is known to us individually. And some of us are struggling in many ways. And the one thing that you need more than anything else is for that felt near presence of the living God. The God who loves you. The Son of God who died for you. The Spirit who has been poured out for your benefit. This is the thing that you need. The, the, the sense and the knowledge of the presence of God among you. And that's what we pray for. What we want most is God's presence with us. And we say, God, even though you give us everything that we ever wanted, we don't want to go there, we, go, we don't want to go on apart from your presence with us. Because what is heaven anyways? Heaven's a beautiful place. But the reason why we want to go is because the presence of God is there in a, a more, it's not, that we're, it's not that we don't have the presence of God here, it's just that it's more visceral and, and close and near, and the risen Lord Jesus Christ is right there with us. And that's the ultimate thing, that's what we want. But even now, as we go in this Christian life, we want a closer presence, a closer walk with Thee. So in our prayers, as we're asking for the world, let's ask for the presence of God to go with us. Let's pray. Loving and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you have shown us yourself, even in showing us this, this sin of your people that is beyond imagination. Lord, they so richly deserved your condemnation and for you to utterly wipe them out. 
But, Lord, you showed them great mercy. And, Lord, what is more amazing is that you opened the door and you made that invitation that Moses, the mediator, might come and wrestle with you. And, Lord, more than once. And he did so with great boldness. He made very free with you. But that was okay because you had granted this amazing status. You spoke to him as a man speaks to his friend. And Lord, we know that those who are in Christ have been given that very same status, that Christ would be our friend. And Lord, we are thankful indeed to have been brought even closer than that, that we are the sons and daughters of the living God and that we are the bride of Christ. And so, Lord, you invite us to ask for whatever we wish in Christ's name. We ask for great things. We do ask, Heavenly Father, that you would grant to us all the funding that is necessary for the Sunderland Church and for officers to be furnished, elders and deacons, to help Nathan in this work, for Nathan's house to be both sold and a new one bought, perfectly suitable for a building for that place in Sunderland, just the right building. Pray for much wisdom and all the resources for it. As we pray for ourselves and all saints, and all the, the resources which this enormous project, over 700,000 pounds, Lord, would be granted even and even more so. And that all the wisdom, all the, all the people needed to do it, all the workers, all the technical expertise, all the design, all of these things, all the permissions would be granted, everything done perfectly and on time. Lord, more so, that you'd fill it, that you'd actually fill that church to your glory. And that, Heavenly Father, you would go with us in these things, that we'd have perpetually before us a reminder of your near presence. We ask it in Jesus' name, expecting to receive it. Amen.